Going through a Sermon on the Mount, we just finished up the Beatitudes last week. So we're going to be starting in, in verse 17, going through verse 26 this evening. Uh, with that piece of information, can you turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 26. We're going to be going through a, a series of uh, Bible passages uh, prior to going into Matthew. And, and the reason why I, I want to do this is I, I want to attempt to paint a picture for you of how, how God views people. How we, how we uh, all are His children, and that, that our past doesn't dictate who we can become, and that there's a hope in, in changing who we are. That even now we can, we can choose to be a child of God through faith in Jesus, regardless of who we think we are or what other people think we are. That we as ordinary people are His chosen to be salt and light of the earth. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Since you have put off the old man with his deeds and put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And we just saw this clip about uh, human trafficking. I want to bring us back to a moment in time where there was slavery, how Christianity was responsible for the abolition of slavery in the Western world. Because it, it made a slave owner and a slave look at each other as brothers and sisters. It made people responsible to treat each other as a family member, so you, you couldn't mistreat them as a slave any longer. And that's something that we're dealing with in our modern era where there's 27 million modern-day slaves, is that people are not looking at that person on the other side as a brother or sister not treating them as such. They're treating them as a commodity. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him, of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 17. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And these verses clearly tell us that Paul understood the good news of the Beatitudes. He understood that upon Jesus' arrival, Jesus wiped out any confusion about who God loves. Because God loves all. 
But people didn't seem to quite understand that fully. See, the people of privilege thought that they were of God because they viewed God blessed them and that they, they were the ones chosen. And then the ones hopeless were thought that they were of God's curses, that they deserved to be in a lowly place because of what they did or what their forefathers did. But that's not so. Mark chapter 10, verse 31 says, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. See, Jesus creates this level playing field and He wipes out any of the dividing lines of humanity. And He lays this new foundation for life under the rule of God so that the kingdom is open to everyone, so that it's an open field to everyone. There isn't one that's higher or closer to it. If you are blessed and you feel like you're closer to it, that's not so. Jesus wipes it out. Everyone's on an even playing field. And so Jesus had to say these next verses we're going to go through in Matthew 5 because these people thought that, that that's what Jesus was doing. That He was coming to destroy the law and the prophets as, as they misunderstood them. Which was you know, a wrong interpretation for them. Jesus says, verse 17, Matthew chapter 5, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The law and the prophets were, were spun in such a way as to endorse a religious oppression by those who were privileged, people who were viewed as first in the kingdom by human standards. So the rich, the educated, the nobility, the powerful, the popular, and they created this human social order. And within this social order, it created an oppression of those who were less privileged and hurt those who were the most hopeless. But Jesus' proclamation of the availability of the kingdom of heaven dumps all those well-to-do people, all the first in the world, from, from this privileged position, and it elevates ordinary people with no human credentials, with no human qualifications. It elevates them into a relationship with God by having faith in Jesus. And Jesus' blessing to the hopeless and making the first last while announcing woes to those who think they are first, but they're actually last, makes the kingdom of heaven open to everyone. And that's why Jesus had to say, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets, meaning to abolish the entire established order as it was understood at that time. The people didn't understand that they were badly misinterpreting what God's heart was. They were all used to being delivered this list of legalisms and, and living within these legalisms. But Jesus went deeper to show the heart of God, to free them from this legalism that was socially oppressive to those who weren't privileged. And Jesus went to the heart of the matter while these folks were mainly concerned with outward appearances, um, outward actions, surface deep actions. And He didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill, to challenge His audience to move beyond the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees to a different sort of righteousness. And this was a powerful message to the audience back then, even though it was confusing because they were thinking this particular way for so long. But Jesus totally flips around their thinking. The simple, the ordinary people were the ones who were oppressed because it was the religious elite who defended their own privileges. 
taking advantage of their own positions. And it's a powerful message for us today, like the people it was back then, 2,000 years ago, because Jesus is going to speak to us through verses 21 through 48. He's going to explain to us what the law really means. And the next 28 verses are going to tell us exactly how we are to respect the law and move beyond the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And from verse 20 on, the Sermon on the Mount has a really important question for us. And that question is, who is the truly good person? And to get a background on this, we have to look at the purpose and the structure of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we also have to look at the brilliance of Jesus Himself. This way, we'll be able to get uh, be able to see what the true goodness that exceeds the righteousness, the goodness of the scribes and Pharisees is. And you're asking, how? How is that possible? Because it's going to allow us to see what flows from the heart resulting in true, truly good action. So in the next three weeks or so, we're going to look at the six situations through verse 48 that Jesus is going to use to show kingdom goodness. How kingdom goodness will outdo legalistic goodness because it values people, just as God does. Have you heard the saying, if you don't know where you're going, you probably won't get there? And this is a truth that pertains to our spiritual lives as well. You can't haphazardly drift into the kingdom of God. You don't randomly end up in the kingdom of God. We are to occupy the kingdom by exercising our will, and this requires us to be intentional with our thoughts, intentional with our actions. And thank God that Jesus guides us and leads us. But as students, we have to pay particularly close attention to our master teacher, Jesus. Now, how do we enter the kingdom of God? Well, how do you enter your home, your car, your office, your classroom? Now, pondering that question will help us understand, understand this. But let's focus on entering the kingdom of God for now. And in reference to entering the kingdom of God, Jesus has some unless statements. John chapter 3, verse 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Matthew 18, verse 3. Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. See, what do these three unless statements mean? Well, John chapter 3, verse 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This means that you have to become a new creation. Matthew 18, verse 3. Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That you've become childlike and that you exercise a confidence, a dependence, a trust as a child does with a parent. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This means that you realize that holiness isn't about acting different. It's about being different. Now verse 20 is the key to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the key to understand, understanding verses 20 all the way through chapter 7, verse 29. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Here's the key verse. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The righteousness Jesus talked about is the righteousness of the heart. Aren't we a better spouse, a better parent, employee, or a better brother and sister in the church 
if we aim to become the kind of person from whom good deeds naturally flow out of us rather than trying to be good and trying to do everything right? It's about going to the source of wrong actions by looking at what's in the heart. It's about actually doing what God intended us to do through the law, not just talking about it. It's not about external self-efforts and actions. That's what was prominent in the days of Jesus, so-called religious people who felt they could earn the love of God through their actions. And you can't. God loves you even if your actions absolutely stink. He, he can't love you anymore. He can't love you any less. The same thing people struggled with back then is the same thing people struggle with now. People who feel that they have to change outward actions in order for the love of God to bless them. That's what the Beatitudes were all about. No, it's, it's for the hopeless. It's there in spite of your condition. <clears throat> so we feel our righteousness is earned by an external self-effort and, and an action. And your righteousness is not earned through you. Righteousness is available to you only through Jesus. And the beauty of the kingdom life is that we can truly become different from the inside out. And it doesn't depend on us earning it. And Jesus described a different kind of heart that can be birthed only by entering the kingdom of God. Jesus then taught that once we've entered the kingdom of God, we cultivate a heart that not only doesn't murder, but one that also lives without anger, without contempt, without maliciousness, and it seeks reconciliation. And Jesus came to change us at the root level in order to free us from a life of external religion, a life of just empty actions. Now we don't have the time to go all the way through verse 48 this week, but we'll go up to verse 26 today. And before we delve into these next six verses, I want you to keep in mind several things about the Sermon on the Mount. It's not meant to be preachy, like this sermon. And, and in the backdrop was the Sea of, the sea of Galilee, right? It's, it's beautiful, you know, grass is wavy, it's really nice, like that. It's like that. Where Jesus is talking. He's talking about the realities of the ordinary world and ordinary life, everyday life. And Jesus isn't just giving good advice. He's enabling us to actually be good people. And He does this by showing us what the actual fulfillment of God's law looks like as opposed to man's law. Another thing to keep in mind was that the point of the talk wasn't to make a few of the Ten Commandments even tougher. And we'll be talking about do not murder today and how much more involved it is when, when we, other, um, more so than when we just kind of glance at it. But it's not meant to make your life harder. A weird thing is that people back in Jesus' day were criticized for, for obedience to the ritual law because they were, they would add to it. They would add all these laws to, to try to make them even, even more righteous. And today we're wanting to subtract moral law from faith in Jesus. We want to make it so that there's more acceptance, that oh, we, we have to be more tolerant. And there are some people who believe the law is dead, that that was an Old Testament thing and that it isn't for today. And I agree with those people in that I don't believe that the Old Testament law is the source of rightness. What I don't agree with is that I do believe that it is the course to rightness. I do believe that the Ten Commandments are, are God's best information on how to lead a decent human existence. However, if the laws only deal with our actions, then it can't penetrate our hearts. 
which is the source of our actions. And the challenge of the modern day church will be to effectively combine faith and obedience in the lives of the disciple. Lastly, the Sermon on the Mount is organized around a single line of thought. It's not a bunch of disconnected, disconjointed, wise sayings. It's to be read in its entirety to give us an understanding that the goal of the sermon is to clarify what the kingdom is like and why the kingdom life gives hope and reality to us. Jesus is not saying His sermon so that there are a bunch of good moral theories that you and I can just pick out the ones that apply to us. And why do I bring this up? Because that's how most people treat the Sermon on the Mount. Unless we understand this as one complete sermon by Jesus, the particular statements that are made by Him within the sermon are left at the mercy of an interpreter to just pull out pearls of wisdom when He's trying to paint an entire picture of us of what the kingdom of God is like and how to make that availability to everyone. This is a unified talk. This is an overall plan within Jesus' sermon on how to attain the kingdom of God, how to live within the kingdom of God. And Jesus is talking about the kingdom heart. And in the next six situations He's going to talk about, He's going to get to the core of our human heart by revealing to us why human existence is totally out of whack. It's because of anger, contempt, hatred, lust, divorce, manipulation, revenge, slapping, suing, cursing, coercing, begging. And this is what transformed the Western world. I mentioned that Jesus talks about six situations, and we're going to cover one of them today, do not murder, which is about anger, contempt, and malice. And I want you to notice something about the order of how Jesus teaches here. Notice that Jesus is going to teach about anger and contempt, but it depends on whether we have received His teaching about our well-being and the blessedness from His teaching about the Beatitudes in earlier verses. You won't be able to accept His teaching on anger and His teaching on contempt if you don't feel that you're blessed by God. He wants to make sure that if you are hopeless, we got to clear that up first, that I love you. And after I love you, you'll be able to learn from me the other things that I'm going to bring up, the other six situations that He's going to bring up. And notice how He is progressing us towards an unconditional love. And we'll go into that a little bit more in the future weeks as we, as we pull each of those other situations out. But keep this in mind as we continue to study the Sermon on the Mount. Because He's brilliant in how He does this. And with that tidbit of information, let's look at anger and contempt, which are the main roots responsible for human evil. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 8, Now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Jesus teaches us that wrong actions are the symptoms of the disease of wrong thinking. That's why so many of us have failed in stopping sin sinful things in our lives. We focus our attempts to stop sin at the level of action rather than the core, rather than the source. And so you're doomed to failure. It's like a weed, right? When we weed, many times we just get rid of what we see on the surface. We just kind of take the leaves off of the, of the weed. What, what ends up happening? It comes back. And in order to get rid of the weed, we have to pull it from its roots. 
We have to get it to the source of where it gets its nutrients, where it gets its water supply, where it gets its oxygenation, nutrition from the soil. We have to get to the root of the problem and not just the exterior things that we see on the outside. The only way to overcome sin is at the source of our evil action, the roots. What is it? Our heart. It's about having the right heart. Kingdom righteousness and goodness is about having the right heart, not about doing the right things. Look at David. He messed up a lot. He had some guy killed after sleeping with his wife and getting her pregnant. God said that he was a man after his own heart. Did you know that you can't keep the law by trying to keep the law? It's impossible. In order to succeed at keeping the law, you have to aim at something more. You have to aim at becoming the kind of person from whom the the works of the law naturally flow out of you. Apple trees. Apple trees naturally, easily produce apples, right? It's their nature. They produce apples. It, It can't produce anything else. If it does, you'll be rich. But it can't produce anything else. And this is a crucial thing to remember if we're to understand Jesus' picture of the kingdom heart given in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the basic mistake of the scribes and the Pharisees. They paid attention to the actions the law required, and they complicated what those actions were and the manner in which they were to be done by putting more rules, by putting more regulations to those things. They created this huge social pressure to force conformity of action to the law as they interpreted the law. And from that, they became strongly self-conscious about doing the right things and about being thought to have done the right things and letting people see that they're doing the right things. But that didn't address the inner dimensions of their personality. It didn't address the condition of their heart or their character. In fact, it leaves the heart and the character with much to be desired. What is in the heart ultimately takes over our intentions, ultimately is responsible for our actions. That is why we we do what we know to be wrong. Just like the scribes and Pharisees, our words reveal what's really in our hearts. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, Brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And our need to look Righteous before people forces us into hypocrisy because we're so busy trying to uphold this image that we're really not because our heart's different, just like it did for the scribes and the Pharisees. Luke chapter 16, verse 15. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And then our hypocrisy becomes the spirit or the yeast that dominates and influences our entire existence. Lies have to cover lies. We have to do things. We have to manipulate things. We have to make things up so that we can cover ourselves and look a certain way. Luke chapter 12, verse 1. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And this hypocrisy infects all of our human relationships. The amount of damage we've created and have the potential to create because we live like the devil while we proclaim Jesus Christ on the outside. So let's look at the first one of the six situations that Jesus compares between the old morality that the scribes and the Pharisees have talked about and misinterpreted and the new morality that Jesus prescribes to us. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, 
and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in the danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly, while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. And when we look at the heart and its origins of wrongdoing, we can often trace it back to some form of anger. And in the order of evil, anger seems to dominate what is at the beginnings of evil. What are some forms of anger? Yelling, withdrawing, grumbling, feeling like a victim, saying, poor me, why me? Sarcasm, depression, cynicism, saying, Yes, but when someone wants help, right? Moodiness. Have you noticed that anger in one person breeds anger in the other? See, the old morality tells us not to murder. But the new morality that Jesus lays out for us instructs us to have a strong desire to help others without any traces of anger, without any traces of contempt or maliciousness. Verse 22, But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. There are several things happening here in this verse. Jesus is addressing anger in the first sentence. He's addressing contempt when he mentions Raka, which, which literally means like senseless man or empty-headed man. And he's addressing malice when he mentions you fool. So let's talk a little bit about anger. Overcoming anger is the first step in developing the kingdom heart. What is anger? Anger is a spontaneous feeling that that rises within us before we have the time to think. It instantly raises an internal alarm within us in our being and and it immediately summons and eternal or internal resistance towards something or someone. And anger occurs when our will is obstructed, when what we want to get done is blocked. And this pushes negatively or it, it makes people react negatively um, to those who are in the way of their will or in the way of what they want to do. And anger starts out spontaneously, right? And we can choose to indulge in it or not to indulge in it. But often we choose to indulge in it. And we remind ourselves of how wrongly we've been treated, uh, which causes this surge of rage within us that's, that's just ready to blow up. And anger is a way for us to try and stop someone from upsetting us further. And a person who indulges in anger often has elements of self-righteousness and pride at their core. Whenever you find someone who has embraced anger, you'll find someone who has a wounded ego. An ego that is sliding down the road to contempt and malice. Jesus is addressing contempt when He says, whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. Like I said, Raka means senseless or an empty-headed person. And when we're angry at someone, we want that person to be hurt some way, somehow, and that usually involves some type of name-calling, right? 
and some filthy language or something about their mom or something. And contempt is a greater evil than anger because it's a deliberate degradation of another person. Jesus gives a greater condemnation to it, and rightfully so. When we're angry with someone, we don't necessarily deny their worth, but contempt seeks to hurt someone or see them further degraded. And name-calling, as Jesus points out here with Raka, is an expression of contempt. It's meant to exclude someone. It's meant to alienate, alienate someone. It's meant to push them away, to leave them out and isolated. It's meant to break them from any social bonds so that the anger by itself is not enough. Instead of Raka, we use dork or nerd or idiot or I don't know what else is used. Those, those words. And the sense of belonging is is a very important human need, right? So what contempt does is it disregards that need and it disrespects the person. Now when anger and contempt are allowed to fester, it produces malice. And this is when Jesus says, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Fool to us doesn't have the same meaning as it did in Jesus' time. Like today it's probably like even a compliment. What's up, fool? Like, you know, it's like... For, for us, the, the words we use have to deal with the words that start with like F and like uh, female dogs and things like that, right? And they're terms that are more often used when we're, uh, when, when we're driving on the freeway or when someone messes something up that's really important to us. And I know I have to control myself when I drive. I'm from L.A. <laughs> people, people get me upset on the road. And... Uh, I was coming back from a pastor's conference this past week with some staff people and an intern. And this driver in front of me kept braking. There's no traffic. It's 65 and they just kept braking. I was like, what are you doing? And I wasn't angry. I wasn't contemptuous. I wasn't malicious towards them. I did call them a bad driver. And I, and I did what I could do to stay in front of them after, after I, I got to get in front. Because I, I didn't want to... I didn't want them to suddenly break in front of me because I had such precious interns in the car and I wanted it to... But I wonder if, if I would have allowed myself to get angry, become contemptuous or, or malicious if, if they weren't with me. That probably would have happened. I don't know. But anyway, malice is a sign of a willful rebellion against God and against what sensible people stand for. Malice is the desire to harm someone or to get even. So if I was malicious to the driver, the bad driver, who kept braking in front of me, I, I, I would have gone in front of her and then started braking. So malice plans revenge. So Jesus says that people like this are in danger of hellfire because it's not possible for malicious people to live in the accordance of God's kingdom. They're totally out of harmony with the kingdom heart. So the only place they could be is not with God. Hell. Verse 23, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. See, the kingdom heart values relationships over rituals. Reconciliation is what's important with the people who have a kingdom heart. Verse 25, Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, 
you will be by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. The kingdom heart seeks reconciliation with an adversary over ritual, over business, over different things that are in your life. Know that if we don't approach our adversaries with a kingdom heart, we're limited to what the world can offer us. A court system. Notice that Jesus doesn't say we have to always give in to the demands of an adversary or that we should never go to court. These aren't laws. These are Jesus' illustrations to us. Jesus is not telling us what to do. He's telling us how to do it. And whatever makes sense in the circumstances that we deal with, do it without bitterness. Do it without hostility. Do it without this merciless drive to win at all costs. And we need to be prepared to sacrifice our interests for someone else's if that's what seems to be wise. And we should keep a joyous confidence in God regardless of what happens. Jesus' goal in His teaching on anger was to show us the value of human beings. And some things to ask yourself to test if you have a kingdom heart are, does my heart long for reconciliation? Have I honestly done what I can? Do I offer sincere actions of love instead of just routine gestures? Do I mourn the harm that someone else's anger is doing to her or his soul, to me and to others? And one final thought before we wrap up here. Have you ever thought of Jesus as being intelligent? Have you ever thought of Jesus being the smartest person to ever live? And I think it's important because it helps us to appreciate his teachings. I've been a Christian practically my whole life, but I really never thought about it until about 10 years ago. I just thought Jesus was like nice, hardworking, sacrificial, looked like a hippie. Like, I, I never thought about him being like intelligent. And, and it really isn't important because I, I was just not thinking about like who I'm getting my lessons from. It's really important because aren't we learning how to live from Him? If we are learning the most important things of life from Him, shouldn't we know that He's knowledgeable about the things in life? And when you ask someone, name the three most intelligent people you, that have ever lived. I don't think that Jesus' name pops up very often. I think most people will say like Albert Einstein or Stephen Hawking or Aristotle, or Bill Gates, Galileo, Da Vinci, Plato, uh, Newton. Um, isn't it strange that the Son of God isn't associated with being brilliant? And if you and I as Christians don't believe that Jesus is well informed about everything, how can we trust our life to Him? If you're not a Christian and, and you're just checking out the Christian faith, how can you come to a place of learning from Jesus if, if you don't think He's smart enough to follow? For some reason, many people have separated goodness and intelligence. And we focus a lot on what He's done, but we, we don't respect His mind. How can we devote our lives to following and worshiping Jesus if we don't respect all of Him? Did you know that Jesus could create matter from the energy He knew how to access from the heavens right where He was? Walking on the, the oceans, I don't know this for a fact, that that's the, the, the Bible doesn't tell us this. I think that he made those hydrogen bonds stronger and walked on top of water. That's what I think. 
walking through walls and stuff, things with quirks and stuff and how the timing and all that. I think he uses all of that stuff. And I'm sure he's amused at what we award Nobel Prizes to today. Like, that? <laughs> right? <laughs> Jesus is Lord, right? Jesus is Lord can mean little in practice for anyone who has to hesitate before saying, Jesus is smart. Jesus is not just nice, he's brilliant. He's the smartest man who ever lived. That's, I believe that's why he never sinned. He's just too smart. Like he could foresee what the, what the result of sin would be, which is death, right? Which is separation from God. He was too smart to let that happen. He's like, no, if I did that, I'm going to be on that side. When Satan tempts him, can't outsmart me, man. No, right? And Jesus is supervising the entire course of world history while preparing the rest of the universe for our future role in it. He's like really good at multitasking. Right? <laughs> and Jesus always has the best information on everything, and certainly so on the things that matter most in life. Do you believe that? If you do, have you asked Jesus to do whatever it is that you do? Because if you haven't, do you then really believe that He's the best at everything? Did you know He's the best bookkeeper? He's the best lawyer? He's the best policeman? He's the best student. He's the best artist. And unless you believe He's the best, you won't believe He is God. How can you believe someone is God if you don't believe He is the best? How can you be willing to give up everything to learn from Him if you don't think He knows everything? And I bring this up because the Sermon on the Mount, along with other teachings from Jesus, aren't simply just wise sayings from a normal guy or a smart or just a relatively smart guy. It's from the smartest guy. Jesus is inviting you and I to learn from the best. Him. Not only are you given the opportunity to learn from God, but He has, a, is, he has extended His hand to you as a father so that you are His child. A child who He wants to empower to grow by making available to you the kingdom of the heavens. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, humoring us when we think that um, we've figured something out. Uh, you must be like a parent with a child, like when my, my daughter figured out how to use the bathroom. And, uh, and Lord, I, I ask that you would um, reveal to us how to not live solely through action, but how to change our heart, how to change the source of our actions, and many of us here are struggling with um, sinful things. And, we, uh, and we're go going about um, treating symptoms rather than the cause. We ask, Lord, that you would reveal to us how to go about changing the heart. In Jesus' name, 